If we say, okay, this is a repudiation by the California electorate, angry about crime, well then why did a progressive prosecutor win in Alameda County? That's Gustavo Ariano, the prolific, versatile, and irrepressible LA Times columnist. He's going to give us his take on the recent California primaries and look ahead to the general elections. He'll also tell us about convincing his father to get a COVID shot. Gustavo, by the way, calls his dad a macho hillbilly. If you want to hug your mother, my grandma, who's not, who hopefully is going to turn 100 years old this year, if you want to hug her again, you got to get this vaccine. Then, by way of a pretty creative analogy, Gustavo will tell us what California's political factions would be as tortillas. The progressives, they're corn tortillas uh, made with nixtamalized uh, masa. It's trendy. It's really, really good, but it's also very expensive, and it's not really, it's not accessible to the population at large. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization with our second episode on the nation-sized, ethnically diverse, yet pretty homogeneously blue state of California, politically speaking. But does one-party government ever produce great policy? And I'm Barbara Bogave, and thanks, Rob, for bringing me on the show to talk about my much-beloved but very challenged adopted state. As always this election season, there is so much rhetoric, so many political ads, yet so few solutions to our big California issues like inequality, homelessness, and affordability. Last episode, Dan Schnur of USC quipped that California does have a two-party system, It's just both parties happen to be Democratic. Gustavo Ariano has a different take. Dan Schneider is really great. That's a funny line. Of course, he's completely wrong. Although he is not wrong in diagnosing where the Democratic Party is at this point, because there is, as always it seems to be, but seems now more pronounced than ever before, a fight for the future of the Democrats. Is it going to be more the moderate, centrist way, say, of the Gray Davis types? Is it going to be a little bit more of a progressive uh, champion like Gavin Newsom has been advocating for throughout his term? Or is it going to go even more to the left, which would be the people, you know, the Democrats who elected Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary in 2020? And that's something that ever since I became a columnist for the Los Angeles Times in 2020, in the fall of 2020, actually, it's something that has interested me. And let's turn it to this primary election, everything that you're talking about there, because legacy media like the New York Times and and others were summing up the California primary as a message to Democrats and also to the rest of the nation on voters' concerns about crime. And I wondered, with such low turnout, even for a California midterm primary, was there really any message from this election? And and if so, what is it? Well, look, as a member of the mainstream media myself, I know far too often we like easy narratives that a reporter could just parachute into, be able to write off about 1,500 words, talk to a couple people here and there, and then go back and, ta-da, I made a grand pronouncement. And especially with California has always vexed and entranced the rest of the country. So this idea, California is super blue, but oh my gosh, look, they just recalled the super blue, you know, prosecutor or elected official, you know, to be specific, a district attorney that surely must say something about the rest of California, right? Look, I'm not going to lie and say, oh, you know, numbers are not up. They are up in some categories, but the numbers of crime are nowhere near the numbers of the 80s and 90s. But the other reason 
understand why the mainstream media and so many other folks care so much is because this crime is now affecting communities that, quote, were never supposed to have this crime. So when we had out of control crime in the 80s and 90s, when it was hitting communities of color, specifically black and brown communities in South L.A. and East Los Angeles, no one else cared except to demonize those people. But now that they're happening a little bit on the west side of Los Angeles, in uh, luxury boutiques in San Francisco, oh my God, California is going to hell in a way that's never going to hell before. Give me a freaking break. <laughs> <laughs> right. It is about that high-profile white community crime. But you're bringing up the issue of race in the primary, which is interesting. Um, did black male voters turn their back on Karen Bass, a black woman, Democrat, running for mayor here in L.A., and make a big showing for Caruso, as the pollsters predicted? That's the other thing that has been interesting, and it is a trend since 2020, and I've written about it a lot from the Latino perspective, because early on, just you know, talking to my cousins, talking to my friends, I'm like, okay, if we want to call Donald Trump the most racist president ever, and I'd put him up there, all these pollsters and all these pundits are going to have to deal with this very inconvenient reality He's not going to lose as many votes as you think he might. And he's actually going to resonate with Latinos and especially Latino men. Basically, my, where my parents are from in Mexico, they transplanted their villages to Southern California, specifically to Anaheim. My family was already mountain people, basically Mexican hillbilly. So you had that conservatism, that independent streak. None of us like, uh, we didn't like the Republican Party in Southern California or in California forever because there were a bunch of racist xenophobes uh, campaigning against illegal immigration, which so happens to be a lot of my cousins and a lot of my uh, you know aunts and uncles and all that. But at the same time, we didn't like the excesses of uh, progressivism, wokeism, if you will, the Democratic Party. So I thought to myself, I need to think of a name of a term. And so I finally coined it, Rancho Libertarianism. So I throw it out there and it starts like making waves with people saying like, this is ridiculous, this is preposterous. On the other hand though, you started getting people saying, that's exactly what I am. I'm a Rancho Libertarian. So flash forward then to the 2020 election. And so I covered that. Trump, who's supposedly, again, the most anti-Latino president ever, not only did he not lose the 25% of the Latinos who voted for him, he gained to a number as high as Mitt Romney. Now, did more black men vote for Caruso as opposed to Karen Bass? I don't have the stats on that yet. I'm sure they won't come out for a while, but that might be something that is going to be into effect for sure. You cannot, the problem with the left, especially or specifically with the Democrats, is they, they still do assume that all minority voters should vote for them because Republicans are evil and racist and whatnot. But that's such a simplistic thing that they then get surprised when minority voters say, like, nah, I'm going to vote my way, and you as Democrats need to give me something more than tell me Republicans are racist. That just does not work anymore. Yeah, well, Gustavo, we had a guest on our Texas series, Dr. Sharon Navarro of UT San Antonio. She tracks Latino political identity, and her description of Latino swing voters, and by the way, they may register as Democrat, Republican, or Independent, is that they're persuadable. Is that your experience in Southern California? Are there many Latinos who lean independent but are persuadable? It's very interesting because it's bifurcated. So the younger population, to me, seems to be more politically engaged. They've been radicalized. You know, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, a lot of the issues with you know LGBT folks, immigration or whatnot. Those are the people that the Bernie Sanders campaign leaned on 
to have such a incredible victory in 2020 and especially in the smaller towns. But when you grow up hearing forever, oh, the Democrats, you know, only the Democrats can save you. The Republicans are evil and the Democrats aren't saving you. At a certain point, you're going to be like, you know what? If the Republican Party is supposedly so evil, but my life is not as good as the Democrats said it's going to be, I'll take my chance with Trump. I'll take my chance with Republicans. And I'm like, all right, good luck with that. That intergenerational divide is very real. And I want to ask you about a different intergenerational divide because you wrote a great column about how you convinced your father to get the COVID vaccine. So let me ask you, what were his objections first, just so we, we get the, the context for this? And what lesson do you think that experience holds for how to talk across a political or ideological divide? <laughs> you, well, yeah, my dad, straight from the rancho, so hillbilly, macho, at, at complete extremes, came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. So don't you ever tell him that illegal immigrants are ruining this country. He's retired now. He was a truck driver for 30-some years, became an American citizen through the Reagan amnesty of 86. But because you have sort of that conservative background, the rural background, also talks to a lot of people. And if you know that type of, you know, working class Mexican, we love to talk conspiracies. Like my dad, I remember my dad would say, well, you know why Trump hates Mexicans, right? Because he, and so this is the conspiracy that he tried to build something in Baja California and the Mexican government screwed him over. And so when COVID starts coming up, of course, he's like, no, nah, that's not real. But since we come from a macho family, in macho families, all the father will always listen to the oldest son. And that's who I am. So I'd have to come in. And he's already stubborn to begin with, but he would listen to me for the most part. Then I'd hear from my sources, aka my siblings, that my dad is like violating what he's supposed to do. Okay, so that was all of our 2020. Then the vaccines happen. Same thing. Oh, I don't want to take the vaccine. It has a chip in it. It's going to kill me. I don't need the vaccine because, you know, I'm, I have a positive outlook in life. My wow, blood is he strong. really was entrenched. Yeah. <laughs> entrenched and then some. And I would have these arguments. And finally, one day, uh, my sister, by a miracle, is able to get an appointment for him. So one Friday, she tells my dad, okay, we made an appointment for you. You're getting the vaccine. And I think my dad was so shocked that he's like, okay. So I show up to his house Saturday morning saying, I'm not going to do it. And so I finally told him, look, if you love your family, you're going to do it. If you want to hug your mother, my grandma, who's not, who hopefully is going to turn 100 years old this year, if you want to hug her again, you got to get this vaccine. If you want to <laughs> hug Gustavo, your nephew I don't again, know what I'm going to do with this. This is you're advising us to use emotional blackmail. <laughs> I, I, I am not. This is reason. This is absolute reason. If you want to uh, oh. hug your nephew again, this is what you need to do. My dad is very stubborn. My dad is very macho, but my dad is not stupid. So he finally got the vaccine. And it's interesting because I went to my editor, Hector Becerra at the Times, and said, hey, maybe I should write about this. He's like, ah, you know, family is kind of hard. It's kind of navel-gazing. But I'm like, I think there's a lesson to be had in this. So I wrote the article. It went viral. I got emails from hundreds of people, Latinos especially, said, my parents were just like your dad. And then we translated it into Spanish. And because of that, he was able to get the vaccine. So I think when it comes to bridging those political divides, it really is love. And I know how corny and cliched and trekly it sounds, but it's like, 
You got to talk to them. You have to have more than anything conversations and you have to wear them down by talking to them, by acknowledging their views and saying, but wait, this is what you need to do. We're talking with Gustavo Ariano. And Barbara, what Gustavo said there is not so much cliched as right on target. That's according to multiple experts we've had on the show discussing how to convince friends and family to get vaccinated. For example, Dr. Lee McIntyre of Boston University, author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. Treat people like human beings, and they will trust you and they will listen to you. And by the way, I think that if we're ever going to get over the political divide in this country, we're going to do it the same way. It's going to have to be grassroots conversations face-to-face. That's the only thing that's actually going to work. Yeah, I really believe that. you got to dig deep down for compassion. And no matter what, just keep the conversation going. And you kept the conversation going with Gustavo. Yeah, well, it was kind of inevitable. Uh, He hosts something called Gustavo's Great Tournament of Tortillas for KCRW, an NPR station in Santa Monica. So I just had to ask. And that took things in a surprising but edifying direction. Well, Gustavo, I think communicating across party lines and ideology might be your superpower, but you have a different one that I really feel I must address, which is being a tortilla tournament judge (laughs) and a general expert on all things tortilla. And you've applied it in your blog by characterizing different personalities like gubernatorial candidates as different tortilla brands. So we were hoping you could do that for the various California political factions. For oh instance, my God! Yeah, well, what kind this of tortillas might be the greatest, are uh, line of questioning in history? But, are okay, progressives so, on the left maybe, or Trumpers, or centrist Republicans? Non-party well, preference. The the progressives are corn tortillas uh, made with nixtamalized uh, masa. Republicans, of course, are mission tortillas, bland, tasteless, uh, with you know. Secretly evil because the company that makes uh, Mission Tortillas is called Gruma. Gruma uh, being, uh, they created a process of dehydrated corn masa called Maseca. And uh, in the 1990s, they were able to get a lot of access in Mexico through the Carlos Salina de Gortari administration. The New York Times did an amazing article about it. That's what the Republican Party is trying to do with its tortillas. The Democratic establishment, what would they be? They would have to be probably, let's call them Romero's Tortillas. So Romero's Tortillas, it's this brand in Southern California that's been around since the 1960s, still family owned, good tortillas. You know, they're not the best tortillas, but they're good tortillas. The interesting thing with them, you could find them anywhere. You could find them at small little grocery stores. You could even find them at Walmart. And then like one more, just because now you got me rolling on this. Um, it didn't take much. No, no, no. Uh, and then the, I guess the green party would have to be, oh geez, tortilla wraps. You know, they could be good, but come on, you got to sell yourself more than just being tortilla wraps. Sorry, green party. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even count as a tortilla. tortilla. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> well, speaking of tortillas that were hard to sell, we were wondering if you followed the New Way effort back in 2018. 
that Schwarzenegger endorsed former Assemblywoman Kristen Olson, who we're going to interview and ask about. Were you surprised at how quickly that seemed to fizzle? Well, no, because Schwarzenegger is not popular. Uh, sh- uh, my wife, in- interestingly enough, she puts it best. She's like, everyone loves Schwarzenegger as an actor. I mean, he was a mega, mega star, just humongous. Schwarzenegger comes swaggering and, you know, he's liberal on some things, but obviously gets a, the Republican Party. And now you know, I have to think back on my Schwarzenegger era. He's trying to do all these things by, you know, dictating stuff, you know, owning the Dems or whatever. But he underestimated the Democratic Party establishment. So at the end, he wasn't really able to do anything. And by the end, no one liked him. The Republicans don't claim him anymore. The Democrats, of course, are never going to claim him. So him trying to chart a third way. It went nowhere. And the sad thing is, if anyone could have done it, it could have been Schwarzenegger. But that swagger early on ruined it for him, ruined it. He could have been the great peacemaker between the Democrats and the Republicans, but he chose to be about himself more than anyone far too late. I don't think that's him anymore, but when he had the power, that's who he was. Let's look at that on more of an ideological rather than personality basis, because California did have this tradition of having moderate Republicans. And to Dan Schnur's point, it's now mainly Democratic factions in control. Is that why New Wave fizzled? Because moderate Republicans have become Democrats? I think, huh, that's a good question. No, the moderate Republicans turned into independents or frankly just don't really do anything anymore because they feel alienated. But it also depends what our, our idea of moderation is. I mean, look at Orange County, California, the place where Reagan said all the good Republicans go to die. We never voted for Trump. There was headlines across the country in 2016 when we voted for Hillary that in 2018, we sent an all democratic how do you say an all democrat constituency or rather all democratic congress people to washington dc the first time that had ever happened and what's interesting now the moderates that are going to come out if you will are going to be these latinos you know these latino elected officials they are not the fire breathers like kevin mccarthy like devin nunes take someone like mike garcia from the santa clarita valley up in what would it be northeast los angeles far more Republican area, far more uh, conservative, far more of a suburbs. He's definitely not a liberal at all, and he's a Republican. So I think the Republican Party, they're seeing that. The chair of the Republican Party in California right now is Jessica Milan Patterson. Don't let the name fool you. She's a Latina from, uh, I believe, Monterey Park, which is going to be a suburb east of East Los Angeles. She and some of these other people are going around and trying to figure out who's going to be those Latinos who are going to carry us to get those Latinos who are independent. No, not the Latinos who are conservative. They're already voting Republican, but those independent-minded Latinos who maybe have been voting Democrat for years, if not decades, but are sick of the party and might want now to go, might want to go Republican, but they need the perfect candidate to make them be able to do so. And Schwarzenegger was that, but Larry Elder was not going to be that. Yeah, right. Well, speaking of independent-minded Latinos of a very different stripe, though, L.A. Sheriff Alex Villanueva, we have to talk about him. And for those of our listeners who don't know the whole story, he's been plagued by scandals. He ran as a progressive, and then in office, he just immediately showed anti-reform colors by doing, among other things, uh, 
reinstating a deputy who'd been fired over allegations of stalking and harassment, and uh, more importantly, just refusing to acknowledge corruption in the force in the form of these deputy gangs in L.A. And now you just wrote a recent column that puts an exclamation point on far-right extremism in the LAPD. So my question is, is this just an old L.A. story since the LAPD has always been the ultimate symbol of corruption? Or, or is there a bigger message, again, about policing nationwide and partisanship? Well, the LAPD nowadays is probably the best it's ever been. And that's saying something under Chief Michael Moore, who really seems to care about these things. That's not to say they're perfect at all. No law enforcement agency is. And it's interesting because the sheriff's department was its own nefarious force, but with Villanueva being elected in 2018, it was expected to be something completely different. And so what does Villanueva, who's a Democrat, by the way, start doing once he gets into office? He repudiates. He like turns his back against that coalition and alternately says um, deputy gangs don't exist. Deputy gangs are overstated. I crushed deputy gangs. And for you to use the term deputy gangs is racist. So, you know, he's just flip-flopping all over the place, but increasingly going to the far right or, you know, going to the right. But the issue that I was trying to get at is no matter where it went to, there is ex uh, right-wing extremism in law enforcement now more than ever. Now, law enforcement has never exactly recruited from the liberal side of humanity, but now a lot of these uh, sheriffs just w give it a wink and a nudge and don't really seem to care about it. And Villanueva seems to be one of them. Yeah, well, Gustavo, speaking of right-wing politics, we did want to get your insight onto this California-Texas rivalry, which we heard a uh -huh. lot about from our Texas guests. There's been a little bit of, I suppose, policy rivalry and competition for national press attention between Governors Abbott and Newsom. And there has been some poaching of some big-name California companies by Texas in recent years. So we wanted to play a clip from Dan Goodgame, who's the editor of the Texas Monthly, you know, a fantastic publication and brand. And an interesting set of numbers that uh, he used to describe that the reality in Texas is a lot more complicated than just uh, a red map. 29 million is the population in Texas right now. 22 million is the number of people who are eligible to vote. 16 million is the number who actually register to vote. 4 million is the number who vote in primaries in Texas. 2 million is the number who vote in the Republican primary in Texas. One million is all it takes to win. So that's 3.3% of the population is deciding who the statewide office holders are in Texas. Yeah, again, that's Dan Goodgame of the Texas Monthly. So we're wondering if that surprises you that such a small percentage of Texans have so much political leverage. No, it doesn't because that's sadly American democracy. A very, very small number of voters control it uh, for everyone else. Uh, and some places going to be more conservative, some places more liberals. And the Democratic Party knows, has known this for a while. And it's interesting because we, there's been so much coverage of this, uh, you know, Cal exit, if you will, to Texas, this exodus to Texas. And a lot of times people focus on the conservatives who move into Texas, but you talk to most Texans and they're like, no, we don't want these Californians because they're making everything more liberal. Gustavo, where do open primaries fit into this? Do California's open primaries do anything to shift entrenched partisanship? 
Oh God, no, they make it worse. Uh, at least back in the day, you could, you know, every party had to run against itself. And then in the general election, everyone had a shot. So you could have the Green Party candidate in there, the Libertarian. I mean, and you'd have months to campaign, months, you know, even a year or whatnot. Now, it's only the top two. And then it, it's unfortunate because that, um, that solidifies in the mind of the electorate that only the Republican and Democratic Party have a legitimate shot of ever winning anything in California. So that's where you then have the turf wars within the parties to try to see who could out conservative or out left each other. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, the effort in many other states right now is for final five or final four open primaries, not final two. Perhaps they've learned a lesson from the California experience. But you mentioned the damage that might have done to bipartisanship. We had a recent interview with Leon Panetta, who will also be in the series. And he looked back upon his tenure as a House member from California a few decades ago, compared to his son's situation today, representing a similar district. I've seen Washington work, where Republicans and Democrats were willing to work together on major issues. And I think the same thing was true for California. Uh, but in recent years, it's become increasingly partisan increasingly divided because of that division. A lot of the critical problems in California uh, really are not being addressed in a bipartisan way. I mean, there are democratic solutions, but they tend not to be built on a foundation that really includes all viewpoints. And I think we pay a price when that's the case. So again, that's Leon Panetta, who was White House Chief of Staff under Clinton, cabinet member under Obama, lifelong Democrat, bemoaning the loss of bipartisanship. Do you think he's right that we just don't get the best policy when we have one party government? Yeah, 1000%. And look, I'm a registered Democrat. Well, I lost a bet. So that's why I'm a registered Democrat. I would consider my politics far more independent, but usually more on the left than anything. Again, Rancho Libertarian. But when you have only one party rule, who knows that they have no danger of being checked by anything by definition that is not democracy. And I know the Democrats have been always teetering on their supermajority. So all that teaches them, it doesn't teach them bipartisanship at all. It teaches them, okay, we just got to make sure that every Democrat falls in line. And if you have a Democrat that does not fall in line, that they need to be pushed out and be replaced with somebody that's more malleable. You said you lost a bet. Did you mean that figuratively? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I never registered with any party until 2018 when I did a speech before the Laguna Woods Democrats, you know, the senior citizen city in Orange County. And I told them, I'm going to make a bet. If a majority of Democrats win congressional races in Orange County, I'll turn into a Democrat. Well, lo and behold, what happened? All the congressional seats went Democrat. And so they had this big, huge thing. And I've, I'm a proud Democrat now. But as I tell people now, I'm able to say that old uh, Will Rogers line, I belong to no organized party. I am a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gustavo, our final question, we ask all of our guests to show a bit of purple. And as a Democrat, that means you have to think of a member of the opposite party, the Republican Party, from current politics or recent memory that you wish were still around to try and help bridge the political divide? Oh, easy. The former mayor of Anaheim, Tom Tate, a Republican. I came from a Republican dynasty in Orange County. Well, Tom Tate comes into office as a conservative Republican and says, no, we need to serve 
the residents of Anaheim, which now is a majority Latino working class town. And so he formed an unlikely, almost impossible in this day, alliance with the most progressive member of the council in Anaheim. And so for Tate to have been able to do this alliance with the most progressive, uh, as progressive a Democrat as you could possibly imagine, that shows that bipartisanship is not only possible, but most often righteous. Kindness is contagious. It overcomes things like frustration, pettiness, anger, jealousy, even hate. Creating trust, openness, enthusiasm, and possibility. It's doing the right thing, even when that right thing seems difficult. So Tom Tate is one of three politicians I've ever respected in my life and the only Republican I've ever respected in my life. And who are the two Democrats? <laughs> I'm not going to say because they're still in office and I don't want them to get a big head. <laughs> <laughs> That was our special guest today, Gustavo Ariano, L.A. Times reporter and columnist, offering up an interesting bit of purple there, citing former Anaheim mayor Tom Tate. Tate again was a Republican who ran and governed on a kindness platform, which you're not seeing too much of in today's GOP, nationwide and in California. And Tate is such a great answer, and it's why I appreciate Gustavo so much as a columnist. He's always surprising me, and he doesn't just confirm what I already know. He also manages to be funny while addressing real issues. Absolutely, and there's some very important points there about why the crime issue in California may currently be getting so much attention. Yeah, hint, it's affecting upscale areas and white people. And why some California Latinos, especially those of the macho variety, are turning toward the GOP as voters and as candidates. In fact, Gustavo coined a term for it years ago. He calls it rancho libertarianism. Really helpful in understanding that identity. Many thanks to Gustavo Ariano for joining us this episode. Next up, for our California series finale, we're looking back not just a few years, but a few decades through the unique perspective of Leon Panetta. He was a longtime California congressman and, of course, former Clinton White House Chief of Staff and Obama Cabinet Secretary. We'll also talk to political comedian Andrew Heaton. I'm from Oklahoma, which means that I am ethnically Republican. I speak country club cowboy hat as my default language. He's author of Los Angeles is Hideous, Poems on an Ugly City. I think the zoning laws are real bad in California, and I think they actually are directly related to why Los Angeles is so horrible, because there were all of these old racist laws that were put in place that forced the city to grow out rather than grow up. And from the former, if possibly also future, GOP moderate thought leader in California, Kristen Olson. She was part of that notable, if not so successful, New Way effort to create a California GOP distinct from the National Party. It started with, yeah, a small group of us, maybe about five people initially, uh, getting our heads around a table saying, what do we want to be? Do we want to be a Republican group that's fixing the Republican Party? Do we want to be a group of Republicans, independents, and Democrats that's working on just fixing political structures and dialogue and public discourse? So we've had many, many meetings trying to figure that out. Definitely a wide range of experiences, perspectives, and prescriptions within our California finale. We hope you'll join us for that episode. Reach out with feedback, reviews, and suggestions, and support us on Patreon or Apple subscriptions as we develop more state-focused episodes and produce our series on Hispanic Swing Voters. 
Thanks for listening. From the entire Purple Principle team, all music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney, The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge Production. <laughs> <laughs>